You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 3rd of January. And with three quarters of us set to look for new jobs this year, we found out how you can best use LinkedIn to promote your strengths. We had a panel of experts. We spoke to Simon Ritchie from Yoke Brands and Emily Roberts from Genie Recruitment. Meanwhile, it's been one year since Cristiano Ronaldo joined the Saudi Pro League to much fanfare. So what's been his impact on Al Nasser and football in the Middle East? We spoke to football agent Saif Ruby. Plus, we looked into our crystal ball to ask what we can expect from 2024. It's a bit of a series for us this week. And certainly the year is going to stand out from a political perspective. We've got more than 60 countries set to go to the polls. That is the most in history. We discussed the implications of that with researcher Mirage Ahmed Chowdhury. Meanwhile, we got your questions for family lawyer Byron James ahead of a rather depressing day that lawyers in the industry call it Divorce Day. It is traditionally the first Monday of every year, and that's when they get the most inquiries. Interestingly, the law here in the UAE has changed in the last year, and Byron gave us the lowdown on what that means. Meanwhile, aftershocks are still being felt in Japan after a massive series of earthquakes. University lecturer Jeffrey Hall talked us through what's going on on the ground in Tokyo. And new dad, Sports commentator extraordinaire Robbie Greenfield joined us with all the latest sporting headlines from the last 24 hours. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Welcome to your brand new year. Have you made any resolutions? Do you know, as I wrote that as a sort of reminder of what I wanted to say on the radio, I thought I haven't made any at all. Literally, I haven't made it. In fact, it hadn't crossed my mind until I came on the radio. So maybe this is my moment to have a think about what we should set as as New Year's resolutions. Please feel free to get in touch and share yours. Um, maybe give me a bit of inspiration for me. I suppose quite a lot of us might be looking at our careers, making plans for the next 12 months, you know, using that changing of the year as impetus for progress or that final sort of nudge that you need to leave the job you hate. Um, Turns out that in the UAE, three quarters of us are apparently considering changing jobs in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, according to Swiss insurer Zurich International Life. But it's one thing to sort of say yes to a survey. It's another thing to actually, I suppose, get off your bottom and do it. Um, If you want to change roles, what is the best way to go about it? You know, it's one thing to think about it. It's another thing to actually take that step. And do you know what's really weird at the moment is I think I'm almost getting to the age where it's a bit scary to change jobs. I think once, I mean, I'm 44, but I think once you get to like 55, maybe, you know, you have to seriously think about whether or not you're going to be perceived as of a certain age in the workplace. So at that point, it becomes quite a serious conversation. Turns out that 52 million people search for jobs on LinkedIn every single week. I know that because I looked it up this morning. Uh, Seems like quite a good place to start. But how can you properly harness it? It, It's definitely come on from just being a social media site. Um, I was really sneery about LinkedIn when it first came out. I think I was a really late converter to it, but it's really 
helped me in the last year. I think it's actually really changed my career prospects actually over the last year, but we'll talk about that a bit later on. Um, So I would really recommend it. If you're not in it, I'd get into it. Um, And we're going to help you with that because I'm joined in the studio now by two experts who are going to tell us how you can harness LinkedIn, not just to change roles, but but also just to improve your standing in your current job. I'm joined by Simon Ritchie. He is the comms director for Yoke Brands. That includes UAE-born restaurants like Pickle and, do you say 1762, Debbie? Yeah, we recently acquired 1762. 1762. Simon, lovely to have you join us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year indeed. And then we've got Emily Roberts, who's an associate director at Genie Recruitment. Happy New Year and welcome to you. Much. And happy new year to you as well. It's <laughs> lovely to have you both with us. And I'm going to start with you, Emily, because as a recruiter, obviously LinkedIn must be part of your bread and butter, or, or I presume it is from the outside, but but maybe it's not. How do you 100%. use it? 100%. Oh, it oh, good. Thank goodness. 100%. I'm logged in every day from 8 a.m. <laughs> um, Literally, first think, thing you do, email and LinkedIn. First thing. Um, I think obviously recruiters notoriously known for LinkedIn. It is very much a professional network, but obviously as well, we use that to headhunt talent specifically for our clients. So clients work with us as an agency to headhunt and source specific skill sets and talents for their positions and vacancies. So you are signed up to the expensive version of LinkedIn, whereas I'm not, so I can't message people directly. Yes, we have a very big bill to LinkedIn every month as an agency. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. And it, it does, it, is it tiered then? So the more you use it, the more they charge you effectively? So there's a lot of different tiers with LinkedIn. So you can have like LinkedIn Recruiter Lite, LinkedIn Recruiter. Um, there's a lot of different levels and all of them come with different price tags. Um, but ultimately, it enables you to search on a different platform. You get a completely different back end. Oh, um, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, to complete different back end. And then also as well, you have freedom to in-mail directly without sort of being connected, if that makes sense. Yeah, oh no, it makes perfect sense. As yeah. a journalist, I'm always trying to get in touch with people through mm. LinkedIn. Mm. And I just have to sort of gussy up that connect message, you know, yeah. to try and get them to, to contact me. So, I mean, 52 million people a week looking for jobs. Would you say that if you are looking for a new role, LinkedIn is an absolute necessity if you're looking for a new job? I would say so. And I think even if you're passively looking, it still is. Um, I very much say to anyone who comes to me and asks me this question that LinkedIn is very much your online CV if you're looking for a job. Mm. As a recruiter, we search by, there's a technical term called a Boolean search, um, which is actually done via keyword search. So say if Simon is asking for a graphic designer, for example, I would then search specifically by specific, maybe, I don't know, um, softwares that they might need to work with maybe even certain like equipment things like that so people search specifically through that so the more detailed your profile is the more searchable you are that is very interesting Mm. and so because i want to move on to what should be in your linkedin profile in in a few minutes because simon simon uses linkedin in a slightly different way don't you so so simon uses okay so how do you use linkedin simon let's let's delay rather than describing it because i know one end of it which is the funny side of things um and then and then but then there is another serious side of, in which you use it as well so uh, as comms director you know have you have staff under you and and and, that, and yet your role is also to promote the brand so how do you use it as a platform yeah absolutely there's yeah, two ways that, that i i use it one similar to, to emily in the sense of 
yes, looking for looking for staff. We we put out um, any roles that we have going at your brands uh, for people to apply. That for me to then check them out on there, you know, before advancing to an interview stage or whatever. Do um, you only advertise there, or do you use other platforms as well? That's it, definitely the main one. We also use recruiters. We use Genie. They are the best in the business. So we. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we also use Genie. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, we, we use a multitude of different things, but I would say LinkedIn is our main one. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of professional side that, that, that I use it for. But then to say that you perhaps know me for is my more kind of personal yet still professional side where I use it for kind of brand, personal brand building, I would call it, um, which is where I post kind of from my personal account and kind of humorous anecdotes or humorous stories about my life or, or try and have a bit of fun with it. The, uh, do you know, if I try and describe how Simon uses LinkedIn, I will only sound, it's a bit like explaining a joke. You, you, you can't really do it on the radio. All I can say is follow him, find him on LinkedIn and follow him. Um, my favourite so far has been the day in the life of an award winning mm. uh, brand manager, which I can't quite remember. How did it start? Do you remember what was the, what was the first thing you said? It was like, it was something like stare in the mirror for half an hour and, and recite motivational lines. Yeah, you know. It was just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, you know, I think a lot of people LinkedIn use LinkedIn very earnestly and a bit too severely. You'll get hundreds of these motivational people who on it tell you about what you should do. So mine is a bit of a satire of that. We have a bit of fun with it. It's essentially what you shouldn't actually do uh, or the kind of personality of a kind of arrogant person. Um, but it's all a bit of fun. And, you know, I like to think that hopefully people that see that kind of gives them a smile in the morning when they're looking through that, whether they're a job hunter uh, or whether they're just on that for, for personal reasons. But, you know, we like to have a bit of fun. It, it is very, it, it's as good as like, I don't know if anyone else follows Dubai Problems on Instagram. It's, it's because you're up there. You're up there with, with you're becoming part of the, the, the sort of the social narrative of professional life in the UAE, uh, which is quite an achievement considering there's so many people here. Um, but Simon, what's really interesting there is you mentioned one of the things that I think one shouldn't do on LinkedIn, which is, um, as, uh, as Brandy described it on the business breakfast this morning, the humble brag. Mm where you sort of, where you say blessed or humbled or basically you clearly are being self-referential and, and raising yourself up and doing it in a way which is just deeply frustrating, deeply mm. irritating. Um, so now I want to move on to what people should, you know, what people should be adding to their profiles and what they should not be adding. Um, Emily, you mentioned a few minutes ago that, about about how important it is to get really specific about, for example, the software that you know how to use or the tools that you know how to use. What else, you know, if you if you were to look at somebody's perfect LinkedIn profile, what, what would they have on it and what, and what would they not have on it? Okay, I think one thing especially people don't really do is they don't use the recommendations tool. Um, that's something that we're very big on. Oh, um, wow, yeah, I've not used that at all. For have example. you not? Okay. No. So it's basically a reference check without it being a reference check. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's people vouching for you. Um, so even as a prospective employer, i.e. Simon or myself as an agency, you can actually see who recommends this person. What have they achieved in their career maybe? Or how are they as a manager? Or how are they as an employee? So these are key things that people don't necessarily do. But I mean, us, like we try and, you know, ask for recommendations for candidates that have worked with us or clients that work with us, just because it kind of like backs your your oh, totally. Yeah. Otherwise, you could just write whatever you want. Yeah, frankly. exactly. And lots of people probably do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it literally is gen like it's people generally writing that about you. Um, and so it's really what helpful. we should do is we should all go out and ask our colleagues to write nice things about each other. Genuinely, I mean, nice yeah. Things. I mean, it's obviously, if they're happy to kind of back it up by yeah. maybe a follow follow reference call or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wouldn't maybe ask your dad to write something, but. <laughs> 
some people can. Simon could. That would be funny. So like some people can sometimes misuse the tool, but in terms of like us in professional capacity, like we we do actually really use that. And even if we're hiring for Genie, it is something that we do check because um, as recruiters, it is something that is quite a, a, a big tool. Really interesting stuff. We're going to get into the nitty gritty of that a little bit more in the next few minutes. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. We are talking about changing jobs on the programme today. New year, new career, perhaps. Uh, We're talking about resolutions as well. If you want to tell me about what your New Year's resolution is, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, But apparently three quarters of us here in the UAE are considering changing jobs in the next 12 to 18 months. So uh, on the programme today, we're looking at the best way to find a new role. And with 52 million people searching for jobs on LinkedIn every week, today we're talking to two experts uh, on the social media site, joined in the studio by Simon Ritchie, who is comms director for Yoke Brands, and Emily Roberts, who is associate director at Genie Recruitment. Now, I'm going to start talking about the best thing that you should have on your LinkedIn profile in order to attract um, future employers. Emily just gave us before the break a really good tip about using the recommendation uh, sort of element. Uh, and, and Emily, I'm going to come back to you for a few more of the sort of strategic details that you ought to be adding to it. But Simon uses LinkedIn in a very particular way, Simon. Could you sort of outline how you came to this? Because it's sort of evolved over the last six months. It's basically... You're very funny on it, which is, and let's be honest, most people are not funny on LinkedIn, but you are very funny. And and I presume it's to, to good effect. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I've been obviously part of LinkedIn for a while and I was watching some people do very successfully on it, building their personal brand, having that sense of kind of thought leadership that they were taking part in multiple posts a week where they would, you know, opine on a certain subject and share their experience and share their expertise. And it was fantastic. And I, I watched some people grow from that and into bigger positions or get invited to do other things on top of their jobs you know you can see them really growing that that personal brand so i, I made a conscious effort myself how can i do that what what are my strengths you know I, I probably don't have that i'm not you know that ceo level thought leadership you know so what do i have where can i kind of share and you know i like have fun i'm hopefully people find me quite humorous so i thought let's try and make the most of that that's how can i put that kind of spin onto linkedin uh, use my strengths to get my name out there and to help build on that Listen, I'm very fortunate I'm in a job that I love so for me it wasn't about trying to find another job but it was about just building that personal brand and making some other people step up and take notice take notice of you you never know what the future may hold and you know for us in our position there's lots of events and kind of conferences and things you can be invited to if, if people uh, believe you would be a good fit for them and for me that that's what it was all about you know I, I'm a strong believer that, that kind of almost everything in business is all about perception you know and I think that goes the very top if you look at the stock market you have companies that have lost hundreds of millions of pounds a year yet are valued at billions of pounds because people have the perception that they are going to do things great things in the future they're going to make great money in the future even though they haven't proven that yet so i try to put the same perspective onto onto linkedin you know even if you haven't necessarily achieved a lot what have you achieved what can you talk about what can you show that you've done how can you kind of show your value to people uh, in a way that you, you wouldn't otherwise be able to and i think linkedin's a great tool for that you know i view it as 
almost like a it's an infinite interview. You know, people are always going to be looking at recruit, recruiters are always going to be looking at that. They're always going to see what you've done. If you go to an actual interview, you have what thirty minutes to try and persuade someone that you deserve a job. You're probably quite nervous. You can only reply to their answers. It's quite challenging. Whereas LinkedIn is this essentially infinite interview where you can put up the things that you've done that are amazing. You can show your personality. You can really you can use images. You can videos. You know you can do so much more to really get you across there. Um, so for me, you know the way I tried to do that was through humour, and uh, and hopefully it's been successful. It's been, I mean it's been incredibly successful. You must follow if you don't follow Simon on on LinkedIn please do look him up and follow him and then you'll totally get what we're talking about but what is so interesting about it is that you've turned the sort of humble brag as Brandy called it the sort of self-promotional sort of we all know what the naff self-promotional sort of statements look like on LinkedIn and you've turned that on its head and and you're managing to promote yourself without while coming across really really well and that is so challenging and Emily I want to bring you in on this as well because how can you promote yourself on LinkedIn without coming across as a bit of a twit no, and there are other words I could have used <laughs> no, that's definitely a challenge and that's 100% what my problem was over the past few years I don't know if it's perhaps a British thing I think we have this kind of thing where we don't want to be seen as being egotistical we don't want to be seen as boasting you know we, yeah. we, 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 we are, try to be humble we you know I anything I've achieved or anything that my company have achieved you know we view that through the lens of the team and it was you know the hundreds of people involved but which is absolutely true but we need to be prouder about what we what we yeah. um, gave to that and the part that we played in that and I think we're often too scared to do that but you know LinkedIn's a good opportunity to do it but just do it in the right way and try not to come across as a twit well well phrased good good foul choice that um emily i mean you're at the receiving end of this because obviously you're scrolling through endless pages of people you know what's good and and what's bad you must have a unique perspective on that i think um a lot of people when they are actively looking for a job per se they do you know they are active about in the sense of you know they message recruiters they message line managers Again, I sometimes get messages from when I know they're copy and pasted. It might say like, hi, Robert, or something like that. <laughs> I'm not going to reply to that. <laughs> no. um, so I think a big, a, big, a big tip would obviously be if you are actively looking, yeah. is obviously when you are approaching people, have a personal twist to it. Like, be personal to them. Yeah. Like, Look we're, all, at we're all people. Yeah. yeah, we're all people. And I get hundreds of messages. So if someone messages me going, hi, Emily, like, I heard you on Dubai Eye a couple of weeks ago that's going to be like, oh, that's nice that you've actually kind of researched or you understand like what we do and things like that. And same with line managers. And I'm sure Simon could say the same, that if he was to get messaged by someone that actually took the time to say something personal, you're going to capture someone's interest rather yeah. than a copy and paste message, you know. Much more impressive. I mean, as far as what you should have on your page, is it, you know, it, for example, if you're brand new to it, should you be putting your schooling, your university, you know, should you be writing? There's those huge, there's sort of boxes that you can tick on LinkedIn where they give you certain set phrases according to your role. Should you be using those or do they just look obvious to a recruiter? I think, to be honest, it does just come down to like what you want to use a platform for. I think yeah. luckily LinkedIn's evolved so much in the past, well, even five years in terms of like, yeah, it is still a professional network, but people build personal brands, people look for jobs on there, people advertise on there, you know, it's, it has evolved. Um, I think if you're asking me in terms of like what I put on there, it's obviously the recommendation side. I really make sure that I have a really interesting like bio. So someone who immediately reads that can learn a little bit more about me. I think one of my first sentences, I'm a big foodie. Like that's just something that is me through and through. Um, I also have all of the companies I've worked for on there, the positions I've had, my education. Education is very important. You know, some companies are particular about, you know, maybe they must have an MBA or a bachelor's degree. And if you don't, 
if you have that and you haven't listed it, then it would be silly not to do that. You know, you've obviously studied that and, you know, you should kind of not boast about it, but publicise that you have it. Um, and I think if you are looking for a job, it's very much, like I said earlier, using it as an online CV. So have all of your kind of like duties and responsibilities in there, like what you were handling, um, because I would screen that and I would want to understand a little bit more about that um also as well there's a contact information tab some people don't do it I mean I don't have my mobile number on there and stuff like that but if you are active and you don't mind getting a call here and there put your mobile number on there I call people all the time from there as well really really good advice guys it's I could carry on the conversation for ages I'd like to basically sit down and get a personal sort of session with you on my own LinkedIn <laughs> and which I'm sure lots of people who are listening would feel the same way uh, but sadly we've got to come to an end uh, but this is definitely a topic we'll be coming back to and in the meantime if people want advice they should be looking at your LinkedIn profiles we've been talking to Emily Roberts Associate Director at Genie Recruitment and Simon Ritchie Comms Director for Yoke Brands thank you both of you for your time it's been a great pleasure Happy New Year Happy year. Thank you so much. See you soon. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Do you remember this? I'm really, really happy to be here. And uh, I know the league is very competitive. The people don't know that as well, but I know because I saw many games. And. you know what I want, and I'm looking forward. It's it's to play, and I hope to play after tomorrow if the coach is <laughs> <laughs> a is a good uh, change uh, chance. That is Cristiano Ronaldo's first press conference in Riyadh after he signed for Saudi Arabian club Al Nasser. And that was 12 months ago exactly. Since then, several other players have made the move to the Saudi Pro League. Um, let's think. It includes Brazil's. Neymar and Roberto Firmino. You've got the Frenchman Karim Benzema uh, and then you've got England midfielder Jordan Henderson and I'm sure there's lots more that I can't remember off the cuff. Um, In September Ronaldo described himself as a pioneer uh, who paved the way for footballers to move to Saudi Arabia. A pioneer is that, is that the right phrase, do you think? I'm joined now by football agent Safe Ruby. Now, he's advised investors and owners of football clubs. He does a lot of work in the English Premier League. He does a lot of work in Saudi as well. Safe, lovely to have you join us on the line all the way from dark London, I imagine. Um, thanks for joining us. What type of impact do you think Ronaldo has had on football in Saudi Arabia? Well, I mean, um, thanks for having me on again. Um, just, I mean, you know, the uh, the reality is Cristiano has always been a trendsetter and a pioneer, as you mentioned it. So in reality, what has he done in Saudi Arabia has really set the tone and set the standard for all the other players in the league to follow, as well as all the players internationally that actually have uh, decided to go there when maybe previously they would have not been um, so sure and would have been on the fence and you know the standard of the football and the league in Saudi has obviously increased um, he's increased broadcasting interest in the league you know he's increased uh, uh, the fans uh, in the whole country and you know really um, and, 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 and he has finished um, you know the 2023 as the top goal scorer in the whole world so to do that at 38 you know t- coming to 39 years old is, is, is simply incredible is the league good enough for him? Or is he slightly, I don't know, pootling around the edges, waiting for somebody a bit useless to pass to him? You can tell I know nothing uh, about football, can't you? 
No, I mean, to be honest, that would be doing a disservice to the players in the league. Um, you know, they uh, the, the league. One, one thing about the Middle East that people uh, internationally don't understand is you could be a top player playing in the English Premier League and La Liga and in, in League uh, uh, in France and then going to the Middle East. Um, you know, because of the different levels of standards and quality, it's not so easy to actually go to these countries in the Middle East and, and, and actually play at a high level. And someone like Cristiano has not only done that, he's set, you know, set the stage for himself and his teammates to actually have to perform better and better and better. Um, and obviously the results speak for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, to all intents and purposes, it does sound like Saudi League football has got better. It's got more exciting. I know that they are aiming for the stars in Saudi. They want their league to be as respected as the English Premier League, for example. Do you think there's a chance they might get there in in decades to come? Um, I mean, look, it all comes down to eyeballs. And if, if they have enough star quality playing in the league... People are going to be interested. Um, you know, I was uh, I was watching uh, the uh, Al Nasser played uh, Al Ittihad last week when it was uh, Cristiano Ronaldo versus uh, Karim Benzema, and uh, you know that was being shown on one of the broadcasters uh, internationally. And you know, there seemed to be a lot of interest in that game simply because of these two legends. And uh, you know, that's just them being legends. Uh, what's going to happen when a lot more younger players and more current stars go there? Um, anything's possible for sure. Why not? Are you working behind the scenes on, you know, deals to get more young footballers over to Saudi? Are they, when you go and chat to these young men, are they enthusiastic about the move or do they, you know, come up with the usual hesitations? You know, the reason, for example, why many of us here in the UAE haven't made the move to Saudi, you know, the the lifestyle is still quite different. A different lifestyle, but to be honest, the, the, the Saudi Arabia, uh, under the leadership of uh, you know Mohammed bin Salman, uh, are actually you know embracing uh, changes, embracing the future. Um, the lifestyle is uh, you know even from the t- tourism point of view, you know that the, they, they are approaching tourism in the country from a different perspective, you know more of an experiential, as I say, maybe some of the more razzmatazz tourism that you see in the UAE. So in reality. You know, people are seeing what they're doing over there um, and it offers a very different but very nice uh, lifestyle for all these international people, be it sports people or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, they need to keep themselves healthy. So maybe it's the best place for them to be, you know, a nice, clean lifestyle. I have to say, I've got a friend who's arranging, organize, you know, he's one of the people organising the big music festivals over there. And it sounds like there is a, you know, there's a lot of fun to be had if you're a, a young man, for example. Um, now, so tell me about what you think about the impact that Ronaldo has had on the kingdom standing globally. Do you think that football is a way for Saudi to improve its sort of soft power? Um, I mean, look, you're, 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 you're going into a bit more of a geopolitical... That's true, uh, that's true. <laughs> you know, you're being a bit naughty there, but, you know, the, <laughs> the, 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 the reality is when you, you know, when you sign up the services of one of the most uh, noticeable figures in world of not just sport in the world period in, in Cristiano Ronaldo of course you're going to get more eyeballs on you and the reality is but you still have to complement that with quality and actually like deliver uh, a good level of football or a good level of interest and the reality is they've done that with with the league in Saudi um, and you know that's going to only get bigger and bigger and bigger and I think it's here to stay it's not something that's going to be a fad but it's just going to be 
you know, look, Saudi Arabia still have their, their methods of doing business and how they have a, they are as a culture. But, you know, just like the UAE took however long time they took to kind of adapt to international, uh, uh, not standards, but, you know, ways of doing things, but also coupling it with their own um, beliefs and interests. And Saudi are doing it in their own way. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, powers that be in the West don't like that because it shifts away from, you know, what, what's going on over there. And, and it brings attention to, you know, to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which has been great for the country and the people living there. Safe, always fantastic to have you join us. Apologies for the naughty question, but always very interesting to hear your views on those types of things. Uh, football agent Safe Ruby there works uh, with lots of football clubs around the world, both in Saudi, also in the UK. Does a lot of work in the English Premier League and very kindly got up in virtually the middle of the night in the United Kingdom to talk to us on the agenda this morning. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. Now, mentally sort of steal yourselves here because um, we're talking about New Year's resolutions, but it's a bit of a depressing one because if you've made a New Year's resolution, I'd like to ask, was it to break up with your partner? Bit dark, isn't it? Sounds a bit dramatic. But while the new year, new you mantra has long blared from the front pages of glossy magazines every single January, and we all talk about what our New Year's resolutions are going to be. It seems that for some people, January is more of a case of New Year, new someone else. Uh, Indeed, the first working Monday of every single year has now been known as Divorce Day because it's just it's awful. It's just so common because people after the holidays, after Christmas, after the stress of the new year, lawyers report a surge of people coming forward and saying that they'd like to get a divorce. And these inquiries have basically established March as the month in which the most divorces are filed. Now, that's a global thing. We wanted to find out a little bit more about what the realities are locally, in particular because laws have been changing here in the UAE regarding marriage and divorce. And I'm delighted to say we are joined here by an expert. Byron James is a partner at Expatriate Law here in the UAE. He's a family lawyer and an expert, and it's great to have him here. Byron, good morning and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good morning. Good to have you. You here busy then for you as a family lawyer? Yes, it is a busy time of year. Is uh, it? After every holiday, is actually that is so depressing. What is it? Is it just that basically? I mean, I had actually my in-laws arrive on Thursday or Friday for a month, so maybe I'll be seeing you <laughs> at not. the end of February. I'm sure I won't. No, no, but but that is is it just the pressures of family life? Do you think? I think there's a lot going on. So I think in the first instance, there are high expectations for some people about holidays. There's false proximity. Yeah. So actually a lot of people structure their relationships where they don't spend a lot of time together. And then suddenly during holidays, they do. And they might realise, oh, who's this person? I don't like spending time with them. <laughs> oh, um, so then you have... <laughs> well, well, you, okay. Sorry, I'm, I'm, just, not, I'm, not, I'm I laughing. I just want to put a more positive spin on I'm it. I'm laughing from an awkwardness perspective. Because actually for some people, a new beginning is the start of something brilliant. Yes. You know, it doesn't have to be depressing. Um, and for some people, getting out of the wrong relationship is the way that they find themselves again. And yes, so it is, liberating. It is a very thing. Yes. Liberating. Two unhappy people coming Correct. apart and then having being happier uh, separately. Um, it, so is it a symptom here in the UAE as well? Yes. So I'd say generally, globally, um, people spending lots of time together can cause friction. There's also financial strain on people during holidays. Maybe they've overspent on uh, excess during a holiday period. Um, and then that can cause problems. 
You've already said about the new year, there's a particular thing about introspection and about reevaluating the life choices you've made and sort of, should I be, am I in the right place where I should be in my life? But I think also for expatriates, there's a particular thing that affects holidays where people go home. And see, going home can really put a focus on people who aren't very happy being here. And actually, this is very sad, but this, this may be more of a summer thing than a Christmas thing. But lots of cases that I do start with people not coming back. And that's called an abduction. It's actually specifically called a wrong for attention. People go back home. They get subject to lots of pressure, maybe from family and friends. And they say, well, maybe I'm not that happy. Maybe I should just stay here. I want to be clear. They shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Is it actually illegal to do that? Yes. Oh, interesting. Specifically a child abduction. Even as a mother? Even as a mother, well, because you have no more right as a mother than a father to go and I know, gosh, change sorry, a country's, uh, a child, a country of habitual residence. They're mine. Yeah, quite well. <laughs> Until it's they're yours. You Until that, they're though, naughty and then they're yours. Yeah, correct. I think a lot of people look at it as I'm just going home and they yes. don't think it's wrong. But actually, when you step back, you're making fundamental changes to if there are children, children's lives, um, to their schooling, to where they live, their friends, their everything about them. Um without uh, having discussed it first, and that's not correct. Now, I think one of the reasons why that might happen is because, and certainly I've had friends who've got divorced, and there is a certain, here in the UAE, and there is a, there's a real fear, and, and I'd say among wives in this country, that the law is not fair here, and that, um, that if they tell their husband that they want to get divorced here, that the the husband can take the children, that they'll be left but with no money, that there's no alimony, there's no support, you know, that basically it's it's terrible to get divorced here. And that's why they naff off home or stay home. But actually the law's changed here in the last year, hasn't it? Quite dramatically. So first of all, I would say, as I always say, don't trust what you read on Facebook groups or from anecdotal evidence because it's very complicated. Yeah. And uh, remember that for most people who live in the UEE, there are a number of jurisdictions that apply to them at any given time because jurisdiction comes not just from where you live but also potentially where you're from. So say, for example, us, we may be able to get divorced in England because we're English, but also we may be able to get divorced in Dubai or in Abu Dhabi or any other one of the Emirates. And let's say our partners come from a different country, maybe that's an available jurisdiction as well. So this is why taking legal advice early on to understand what your options are is very important Because understanding all your options as to where the best place to start a divorce and hopefully finish it there is uh, important. Because as I say, numerous jurisdictions apply and there are very different outcomes across those jurisdictions. So, for example, in the UEE, there are four different family laws applicable right now. Oh, so Dubai, Abu Dhabi... No. Uh, No. No. So you have a personal status law. Okay. So that is the Sharia law-led applies to locals and Muslims in um, every emirate apart from Abu Dhabi. Okay. You have the non-Muslim federal law, which came in on the 1st of February last year. So that applies across the UAE to non-Muslims. You then have foreign law, which is applied by the personal status court, although I should say that's not done very often for obvious reasons because the UAE doesn't want to apply foreign law when it comes to family law cases. And then the fourth one is the Abu Dhabi Civil Family Court. So there are four jurisdictions and they're all very different. And I, so for example, in Abu Dhabi, you're divorced in 30 days. Goodness. So if you started a divorce at the start of January, divorce day, by the end of January, you'll be divorced. Wow. Okay. And what type of decisions drive 
what what type what type of factors drive which decision you would make? So, for example, um, is it better to get divorced in if you're if you're from the UK? Is it better to get to get divorced here or under the UK jurisdiction? As far as getting support um, from your spouse, whether that's a, a husband or a wife, you know what 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 elements are at play here? So, this is a complicated question and is very fact specific. Okay. But in summary, I would say that for some people, the Abu Dhabi divorce process, which is extremely efficient, probably the fastest in the world, uh, is optimal. Some people prefer that. So if I was to say to you, um, and you want to get your divorce done quickly, uh, Abu Dhabi is the place. Because in England, it's not possible to get divorced quicker than 26 weeks. And actually, the average case is likely to be a year. So if you, the difference between England and Abu Dhabi in terms of speed is huge. But of course, in England... Uh, one might say, it's a more uh, worldwide, comprehensive, forensic forensic process because they have wider powers for the court. Although I will say that the Abu Dhabi court in particular does have the most powers of all of the courts in all of the jurisdictions in the UAE. And for a lot of people, it is actually completely satisfactory to have those powers deal with their case conclusively. What are the most, I've only got about a minute left with you, what are the most sort of common difficulties or pitfalls that couples divorcing here face? You know, what, where, do they, where do they fall down? Where do they find it disappointing or difficult? I, um, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think it's bad legal advice and starting in the wrong way. Yeah. I really yeah. mean that because I deal with so many cases where people come to me and they say, oh, you know, I've gone off on this path. And going off on the wrong path in a divorce increases the acrimony, mm. makes things harder. Maybe it leads to people having more suspicion about what's going on. We talked about abduction earlier. That can increase the tension. I think it's making the right moves at the right start is the best way of keeping it amicable and then keeping it um, cheaper as well. Because obviously the more acrimonious it is, the more you have to spend on legal fees. And nobody wants to do that. Byron, really interesting to have you in on, on what is a very depressing story. Although you say that there is a lighter side to it, and you're sort of right. You know, if people are unhappy and it means they end up happier, then then all all's well that ends well. Uh, but Byron James, fabulous to have you join us in the studio. Thank you very much indeed. Partner at Expatriate Law in the UAE. Uh, lovely to have you with us and a happy new year happy to new you. Year to you. Lovely if to see you. Yeah, if people want to get in touch, do, you, do they just find you on Expatriate Law? People are... Google my name. It'll Google Byron up. James It'll and you up. can find him. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the programme. Lovely to have you with us. Every day this week, we are going to be taking a look into our crystal ball to ask what we can expect from 2024. Today, we are talking politics. Um, And that is because this year is already being dubbed the biggest election year in history. More than 60 countries are set to go to the polls. I mean, if you think about that, that means that half the world's population, 4 billion people, are going to be able to participate in regional legislative or presidential elections in the coming 12 months. And many of those elections really are going to have major global implications. I mean, you've got 
the US election, for example, uh, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, looking likely to be one of the front runners uh, for that presidential election. Uh, and uh, he gave a controversial stump speech in Iowa to mark the new year recently. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means necessary there willing to violate the U.S. constitutions at levels never seen before in order to win this election. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. It's a threat. So, I mean, you can hear there and often in President, uh, former President Donald Trump's speeches, there's, there's concerns about misinformation. Of course, it depends which side of the political divide uh, you sit. But there is ongoing legal uncertainty over uh, a second Trump candidacy. You're also going to have elections in the United Kingdom. That's not a certainty, but it's pretty likely that they'll go this year. That is the first time that America and the UK's electoral schedules have coincided since 1992. But the very first one that will take place is Bangladesh. Now, they'll actually be hosting their national election this weekend. And concerns have already been raised there about the potential impact of AI-driven misinformation on social media. So what does this all mean for global security? What does it all mean for 2024? Well, joining me now is Maraj Ahmed Chowdhury. He's the managing director of a Bangladesh-based media research firm called Digitally Right. Mirage, lovely to have you join us on the line. Tell me, how has campaign season been looking in Bangladesh so far? Uh, first of all, thank you, Georgia, for having me again. Uh, it's very nice to talk to you. Uh, yeah, I think the campaign is uh, kind of in its final stage. You already probably know the main political opposition has boycotted this election. So it is, again, uh, very much dominated by the ruling party. And we can see a range of uh, independent candidates who are actually from the ruling party who didn't get nominations from the ruling party. So there will be, I would say, some level of intra-party competition within this election, but it will consolidate the power of a particular party in the system. Uh, there are also other parties who are also joined, but they're so very small and they're not considered as a large political opposition. So from that sense, the campaign is not that vigorous that it should be when all all parties participate. But we can see that there is a rise of uh, social media campaigns and, and different type of uh, different type of hate speech also being in use in election campaigns. But and a lot of monies are being spent on uh, digital platforms for campaigning, as we can see it right now, uh, from different transparency reports and our own monitoring as well. That is set going so, to be a. I think that is set to be a theme in all of the elections uh, this year. The influence there, as you mentioned it, of of social media, but but there's also concerns about the influence of artificial intelligence or AI generated content. Is that a big concern in Bangladesh? I told before that it is particularly uh, in an experimentation level in Bangladesh, but not very widespread at this moment. But I think different countries have different capabilities in terms of producing information for social media. So probably we will see more more use of AI-generated content in other countries where there is more investment in technologies and where there are more resources are involved in uh, political campaigns. So it is going to be an issue, a big issue in the coming few months in all over the countries, to be frank, uh, particularly countries where you see most competitions, where you have a tradition of spending a lot of money in campaign funds, not only by the campaigners, but also by different actors, supporting groups, 
very shady political and non-political actors who are influencing the election, I think these kind of technologies will be used uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. 60 global elections due to take place. Which would you suggest are going to prove the most critical on a global level? Yeah, uh, I think we are watching this election year. You already told half of the world's population uh, will be going through elections in this particular. It is coming in a time when we are talking about rise of populism in all over the world. So in many ways, I think... uh, public narratives uh, will be shaped by this, uh, I would say, social media platforms, and, 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 and they will play a critical role. So this is one side of it. And not only that, it will influence this particular election, you know, US, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, then you have Mexico, you have South Africa, uh, you have Russia, you have Iran, like all the big names in every continent is an election right now. European Union as a whole, there will be an election. So uh, the election in Taiwan will influence how Chinese policy will shape up in this particular region. Election in India will shape up how Indo-Pacific strategy of US and other partners uh, will follow. And Indian election will not only influence India itself, but also its neighbors, to be frank, because of its uh, geopolitical uh, situation and becoming a large uh, country with political influence. So I think uh, each has larger implications, not only on security, uh, local security and society, but also global politics and security as a whole. Uh, Each of these countries are big. Each of the countries have different role in different kind of political polarization in this this whole world. So, So I think this is a very critical year that will shape up the global politics in the next five or so years or so. We are right at the beginning of that moment and probably Bangladesh election is just the beginning of it. Absolutely fascinating to speak to you, Mirage. It sounds like it could be quite a tempestuous year from the perspective of politics. Uh, Mirage Ahmed Chowdhury, their managing director of the Bangladesh-based media research firm Digitally Right. Thank you so much for your time on the agenda today. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. We're going to turn our attention now uh, to a catastrophe, a natural disaster uh, that took place in Japan over the last few days. Uh, Sadly, at least 62 people have died. And and it comes after a number of major earthquakes hit parts of Japan. There are still warnings of more tremors to come. And experts fear that the damage to homes and buildings is so great that it can't be assessed yet because there's, you know, mobile phone contacts, water, power, all of those types of things are still down in some areas. Uh, Japan's military has mobilized. They have dispatched a thousand soldiers to the disaster zones to join the rescue efforts. Ochiro Hota managed to escape from his home in Kanazawa and he sent this message. I couldn't stand up inside my home. I ducked under the table, then sat and waited. I was very, very scared. I've never felt that way. I thought I would die. I thought it's the end. 
Joining me now to give us a little bit of an update on what the situation is like on the ground now is Geoffrey Hall. Now, he's a researcher and lecturer at Kanda University of International Studies in Tokyo. Now, Geoffrey was about 250 miles away from the epicentre in Ishikawa Prefecture. Uh, that was when the uh, the earthquakes first started to hit. So it was so quite close. Uh, Geoffrey, what was it like being in the midst of, of that first earthquake? Thank you for joining us first of all, and and Happy New Year. Uh, Thank you, Georgia. Uh, Well, uh, it was definitely uh, a unique experience in that usually earthquakes, when you feel them in Japan, they're much shorter. Uh, They're you know, a few seconds, maybe 10, 20 seconds. Uh, But the earthquake that I felt even over 200 miles away uh, was very long, over a minute and a half, I would guess. Uh, I was on the second floor of a house. And so when you feel an earthquake that's that long, uh, you know that it's been a big earthquake somewhere. But in my case, it, I was very far away, so the shaking was not very violent. But uh, I immediately turned on the news and I saw that it was an extremely powerful earthquake that it hit on the other side of the country. So uh, it was uh, quite uh, shocking to see that this was happening on New Year's Day. What is the feel in the country at the moment? Is is there a sense of a sort of country in crisis or a sense of a of a country in control? Well, Japan has natural disasters frequently. There are heavy rains that cause landslides, earthquakes on a very frequent basis. So uh, people are used to there being a major disaster like this every few years, but that doesn't mean that people are complacent about it or they don't care. I think a lot of the nation is turning on the TV and and hoping for the best, hoping that people will be found under buildings and they'll still be okay and that the death toll won't uh, grow much larger. It's now up to 65, actually, uh, gone up a few since uh, the, the last articles published in English. But people are, you know, holding their breaths, hoping for the best, uh, wanting to do whatever they can for the people in that area. And there have been lots of donations and local government offices from around Japan organizing supplies to send out. So there's a big effort to try to help the people over there. New Year's Day is a particularly important day in Japanese culture, isn't it? There were lots of people who would have been visiting family. Yes, it's the most important day of the year for seeing your family. So uh, people who live in different areas of Japan but have parents or grandparents who lived in that area would be going there to visit them. So in some cases, entire extended families were in the house, people not from that area uh, when the earthquake hit. So this also makes it difficult to uh, really estimate how many people might be stranded out there and need help. Uh, And it's going to take some time to figure out uh, who is accounted for, who uh, got back to their hometown. Uh, And also the added uh, feeling of, you know, everybody being at home with their family and then seeing this major disaster unfold on television. I understand that there are more tremors to come. Now, it's really interesting whenever, what do we call them? I want to say volcanologists, but that would be volcanoes. Uh, but people who are experts in earthquakes, you know, <laughs> my brain just can't remember the word for it. <laughs> Seismologists, That's I think. That's <laughs> the word. It's a bit like when you try and find the bell ringers, um, the sort of bell- campanologists for bell ringers. But yes, yeah, seismologists, um, they, ha- they are forecasting more tremors. Is that because Japan lies on a particular fault? Is it, is it, is it very... Um, do you have a lot of earthquakes there? Yes, there, Japan 
lies on several different faults. It's one of the most earthquake-prone places in the world. Uh, so when a big earthquake like this happens, uh, there will be aftershocks, no doubt about it. And there have been over 150. I think there was one 30 minutes ago. Uh, uh, three hours ago, there was one that was so strong that it would qualify as national news if it had just taken place on its own. So these aftershocks are adding to the damage that already was done by the first earthquake. Maybe some roads that were still passable are now no longer passable because of the earthquake that occurred this morning. So uh, this is going to continue for some time. And, it, and, and a similar thing happened in uh, 2011 when the large earthquake hit the Tohoku region. Uh, for days, there were aftershocks going on, uh, perhaps more than a week, if I remember correctly. You could feel it in Tokyo, even though uh, it was happening up north. In those situations, you know, are you feeling the shocks enough in Tokyo to have to leave your home? You know, I mean, I've, I've never felt anything more than the slightest shaking here in the UAE and in the United Kingdom. You don't really get them. So I've never actually felt a strong earthquake. In the case of this earthquake that happened most recently, uh, it is far enough that uh, we don't really feel any of the aftershocks here in Tokyo. I'm on the fourth floor of a building right now, and I haven't felt any the whole day, even though there have been quakes going on over there. But uh, I think when you feel an earthquake of a certain intensity level, uh, you try to either get under a doorway or somewhere where there won't be furniture that falls on you, maybe even get under a table. That's the usual uh, advice that's given is try to find something sturdy around you that's not going to fall on you. Uh, and I've been lucky enough not to experience a very major earthquake in my almost 20 years here. Uh, I've only experienced big ones from afar where it doesn't shake quite so much in Tokyo. But I think most people growing up in Japan, they learn uh, these kind of common sense things for their country where there's so many earthquakes, you got to be ready. Maybe you need an emergency bag with things to take if, you're, if there's an evacuation order. Uh, but most people will just shrug off uh, minor earthquakes and kind of just uh, check to make sure dishes haven't fallen and then get back to their normal lives. And of course, uh, often they can cause tsunami. And there were a lot of tsunami warnings when those earthquakes first happened. But fortunately, uh, the biggest waves only came in at about a metre high. So there wasn't that, that awful uh, earthquake. Uh, there wasn't that awful tsunami scenario that we have seen in the past. Jeffrey Hall, a great pleasure to have you join us on the radio this morning. Thank you very much indeed uh, for talking on the agenda. Uh, Jeffrey's a researcher and educator at Kanda University of International Studies in Tokyo. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to your Agenda programme. Happy New Year. If you've just tuned in to the radio station, you haven't heard me say it already. There's a bit of a sort of conversation point as to when you stop saying Happy New Year, isn't it? Do you think it's by the end of this week? Or do you think I can push on through until mid-January? Um, <laughs> and also, we're talking about resolutions. What I love is that I've been asking everyone to send in their resolutions. So far, not a single person has sent in a message saying that they've made a New Year's resolution. So maybe you are the same as me and you haven't made one yet. It literally didn't occur to me until somebody asked me this morning. I haven't come up with anything. Do you think you just get to about 44 or 45 um, you can tell I'm preoccupied with my age at the moment. I'm only a month off 45, which just sounds so old. Um, 
and maybe you get to a certain age and you've just resolved everything so you don't need to make any more uh, but yeah no New Year's no New Year's resolutions yet I tell you somebody who won't have any time for New Year's resolutions or time for anything at the moment that is Robbie Greenfield because he is a brand new dad of two the twin girls gorgeous twin girls were born just before Christmas uh, so somehow he's still managing to hold down his job and be a dad uh, and in fact he has very kindly sent us a sports report for the agenda today here are your first uh, headlines or at least the first headlines from me presenting the show because of course Jen did it yesterday um, but the first my first sporting headlines uh, from 2024 uh, were from the amazing Robbie Greenfield Let, can we, should we listen and see whether we can hear whether he's tired whether his voice is tired good morning it's been a busy 24 hours in the world of professional sport we've seen some returning legends in one we've seen a teenager take the world and his sport by storm in the other let's focus first on tennis where not one not two but three high profile individuals have recently made comebacks down under in australia rafa nadal he impressed after a year off the court battling that hip injury uh, coming back to beat dominic team former us open champion after an absence of 349 days from the professional tennis circuit he won 7-5-6-1 he will now gear up for a tilt at a third australian Australian Open crown, but of course his old rival Novak Djokovic very much standing in his way. There were also comeback wins for Naomi Osaka, who's recently had a baby, of course, and Emma Raducanu, who's been battling her own injury problems. So let's hope that they all thrive and prosper in 2024. But in all honesty, I've got to say, tennis is going to take a back seat on this sports update. I love Rafa. I really wish him well in Australia. But right now, it's all about one man and one man only and one sport that we don't often talk about on our show, but we have been over the course of the last few days. I'm talking about darts. I'm talking about Luke Littler. He may look 36 years of age. He's actually just 16 and he's made the PDC World Darts Championship, beating Rob Cross, a former champion himself, 6-2 to face the world number one, Luke Humphreys. It's the battle of the Lukes, the Luke Derby, as Chris McCarty has christened it. He beat Scott Williams, six to nothing in the other semi-final and Luke Littler 16 years of age a man who the crowd are chanting at you've got school in the morning despite the fact it is school holidays over in the UK he's earned a whopping 200,000 pounds for his effort, efforts thus far and he stands on the precipice of a truly historic victory in the final tonight it gets underway just after midnight this evening and Luke Littler trying to become one of the youngest world champions in any sport you may scoff at darts you may say it's a pub sport it's a pub game it's not a real sport trust me these guys have incredible ability and incredible mental strength and incredible talent and i urge you all if you can stay up late to tune in to watch luke littler take on luke humphreys a little bit later on yes you've got boris becker at 17 who won wimbledon yes you've got mike tyson who at 19 became the world heavyweight boxing champion tiger woods pele you name it luke littler will eclipse them all if at 16 years of age he wins the world darts championship tonight i for one cannot wait i'll be watching on the edge of my seat from just after midnight that's all from us you can catch more sports talk on off script extra time from 7 p.m
Robbie Greenfield sounding absolutely fine there and also offering to stay up past midnight despite having two very small little girls uh, in his house. No, he sounds brilliant. And I have to say, I think I could almost, I won't be, but I could almost be tempted to stay up late to watch the darts. Uh, do get in touch if you'll be watching it. And remember, if you want to hear more exuberance, more darting exuberance, uh, tune in from 5pm for your drive time show. It is off script with Chris, Robbie and Sonal. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.